I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty of extras, and we would love to share one with you. <clears throat> Maybe you don't come from a background where you've learned how to read right from the Bible. We really want to encourage you to do that. We're, we're, we read through books of the Bible and help people to apply it just the way God intended because it's his absolute truth. But as we've been going through this particular book, we've called this series Rebuilding a Healthy Church because when the Apostle Paul first came to Corinth, it was just a bunch of pagan Greeks, some Jews, some God-fearing Gentiles. But as the gospel spread, we learned that there was this ragtag group of people, some of whom were thieves, adulterers, fornicators, homosexuals, covetous, idolaters, swindlers, and God does what he loves to do, and that's save and change sinners. So Paul took these people, religious, non-religious, just preached Christ to them, and the power of the gospel transformed them, and he was with them 18 months and, and had a good, solid church. But Satan, as we all hopefully believe, there's a real devil, he hates that. He hates to see people saved, and he hates to see churches healthy. And so he'll attack it from every angle he can. From the outside, he persecutes it. From the inside, he poisons it. He'll mathematically do whatever he can to, to come against the gospel. He'll add to it, right? Like he did with the Galatians. Oh, you, you don't just believe. You have to be circumcised. He'll take away from it, which we're going to see today. He changed it. He'll divide people over it, and he'll try to multiply confusion. So, as we've been going through this series, one of the many things that we saw, they had all kinds of problems. They had immorality in their church. They had an incestual relationship. They, had, they were indicting one another, going to war. They were, were going to court. They were refusing to, to, to listen to Paul's advice to stop going to idols' temples. And eventually, they were just saying, we don't have to listen to you, Paul. So the last three chapters, actually four chapters, he, he was instructing them, here's what you're supposed to do when you gather Remember we talked about head coverings, the Lord's table, but especially the last three chapters, 12, 13, and 14, we, we saw a lot about how when you come together, we're to love each other by expressing the gifts of the Spirit. <clears throat> and uh, again, I'll say this, we're supposed to come together, Spirit-led, all-inclusive, everybody's involved, gospel-centered edification, building each other up. So we're going we're gonna to turn the corner here. He's going to move to a new subject this morning. Oftentimes, people move away from their Christian faith in their beliefs or their behavior, but usually it's both. Rarely will you see someone who changes their behavior who doesn't say, oh, I've changed my belief. It's just too intellectually assaulting to say, I still believe Jesus is Lord, and I still believe that he died for my sins and rose again, and I still believe that he's the only way to heaven. However, I think I just want to have an affair. So it's so much easier to say, well, I don't, I don't really believe that anymore. Because if I don't believe it, then I'm really not responsible for how I live. Because after all, I don't believe that. When in fact, that might seem like a clever way to change our behavior. God's not buying it. And so what we're going to learn in this particular chapter is that the Corinthians, many of them had changed their mind about the resurrection of Jesus. 
In fact, he sums it up in verse 12. Look at, look at verse 12 of chapter 15. He says, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Like, he's like, hang on, hang on. Let, he said, when I was with you, I proclaimed that Christ rose from the dead. But now I've come to find out that there are some of you who are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Now, I think more specifically, what they were saying is this. Yeah, yeah, we believe Christ rose from the dead. We just don't believe we'll rise from the dead. So, so note that, that, that somehow they just had lost track of this idea. I'm not sure that they fully denied that Christ rose from the dead. What they were denying is that we'll rise from the dead. And we'll talk about that. But, but I guess the starting point would, would be to ask, what would have caused them who at one point say, yeah, I, I believe, to then go, no, I don't believe people rise from the dead. What, what causes that? Well, to make it more come home, what causes a, a young person to grow up in a Christian family, hear the gospel, memorize verses, president of the youth group, fire for the Lord, goes away for a few years, maybe goes to college, and then comes home and says, I don't believe that anymore. What causes that? Well, I don't think there's one singular reason, but usually it's through the influence of someone else, right? Well, my professor or my friend or this guy I was listening to on the radio. And so later in this chapter, Paul's going to say to these Corinthians, like, wake up. Don't you realize bad company has corrupted your good morals? So what he's going to do is he's going to try to win them back to this understanding of the gospel. But I'm going to suggest that there's probably two reasons why they were okay denying the resurrection. First of all, <clears throat> while Paul had made it clear that Christ rose from the dead, Gordon Fee in his commentary said this, and I thought this was interesting. He said, maybe Paul had not deeply explained the resurrection of believers in the earliest Christian preaching. He, he, must, he must have touched on it, but maybe it just didn't sink in. And here's how he comes up with that. If you guys remember 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the Thessalonians were, were distraught because some of their loved ones had died. And, 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 and they, they were like, well, what's going to happen to them? And so Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4, write this down, verses 13 to 18. It's a great chapter. This is a chapter on the rapture. He goes, I don't want you to, to, to sorrow and grieve without hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and a voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. And he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so comfort each other with these words. So those of you who have lost loved ones, take comfort in that. I know, I can't even imagine your unspeakable sorrow, but if they know the Lord, you haven't lost them. Something's only lost if you don't know where they are. You're just painfully grieving until you're reunited with them. So maybe one reason why they were gullible and easily misled about this is that they hadn't yet really been grounded in the bodily resurrection of believers. But secondly, probably more importantly, is for the most part, Nobody believed in resurrection then. Some of you may have uh, heard of a, a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright, and I have mixed opinions on some of his things, but I really like what he, what he says here. Listen to this. So he says, 
Greeks and Romans thought that death was the complete end. Most of them, so imagine, in your culture, most of them believed that when you died, you had a shadowy existence in a place called Hades. So you guys have heard of Homer, for example. Homer wrote that you go to a murky world full of dumb, gibbering shadows, and you have to drink sacrificial blood before you can think straight, let alone talk. So imagine that. Many Greeks are like, when you die, you, you, you kind of, your soul just kind of is running around. Now, Wright goes on to say, people who followed Plato, their view was this. Death would release your soul from its bodily prison. So, so, so occasionally you could go to these wonderful places, the Isle of the Blessed, or even to the abode of the gods. But at the end of the day, you still didn't rise from the dead. It's just some, some, and, you, and you'll hear people today say, oh, you know, I believe I come back as a dog or reincarnation. All these unusual ideas about what happens when you die. So Wright closes with this thought. This was interesting. He said, everybody agreed with this. There's no resurrection and that death could not be reversed. Homer said it, Aeschylus said it, Sophocles seconded it. So he gives a quote from one of these philosophers. What's it like down there? Asked a man of his departed friend. And his departed friend said, very dark. And by the way, is there any chance you're going to come back up? No, it's a lie. So at best, the Greeks believed that you never rise from the dead, but they had this idea that you could use magic to get in touch with the dead. That, that was called necromancy. So for the most part, none of them believe you rise from the dead. But Paul comes and says, Jesus rose from the dead. And they're like, yeah, praise the Lord. And then someone comes along and says, well, don't you remember? You can't rise from the dead. And they're like, oh, that's right. And so they, so they bought it, hook, line, and sinker. So now Paul is rebuilding a healthy church. He says, we have to address this. So this morning, we're going to look at these 11, first 11 verses, and we're going to see that Paul's going to do three things. Number one, he's going to give them a reminder of their response to the gospel. Okay, he's going to say, hey, don't you remember when I preached the gospel, how you responded? Number two, he's going to give them a reminder of the contents of the gospel, like, hey, let's make sure you understand what the gospel is. And then finally, he's going to give them a report of his remarkable apostleship in the gospel. And the reason he's going to do that is because they have pretty much said, we don't have to listen to you. And he's going to go, yeah, you do. And here's why. I'm an apostle. So let's start with their reminder of their response to the gospel. Let's look at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, now, I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, interestingly, this word, I make known to you. Technically, in essence, if, if it's something that you already told them, you're really reminding them. In fact, the NIV just jumps ahead and just does that. Because Paul knows he already preached the gospel to them. So he's not like, let me show you something I never told you before. So he's going, in essence, let me remake known to you the gospel which I preached to you. Let me remind you. But at this point, he doesn't focus on the content of the gospel, but on their response. He goes, 
let's remember how you responded. So this is very important. Our mission statement is to advance the gospel. Log this into your skull. The gospel is information, information that comes with an invitation to respond. And that's very important. It's not enough to say, Jesus died and rose again. That's only part of sharing the gospel. That's the information. But the invitation is, what are you going to do about it? Right? I mean, it's almost absurd to think of it, not that we're salesmen to the gospel. Imagine presenting your, your product to someone, but then not inviting them to buy one. I mean, salesmen are, this is the, they're like, how many do you want? Just one or just three? You're like, wait, I didn't say I wanted any. Well, the gospel is not just something that we go, hey, I've got some good news. Jesus died and rose again. The gospel demands a response. In fact, sometimes the Bible will use this phrase. If you don't obey the gospel, you will perish. So we're going to come to the content of the gospel, but what God wants you and I to do is especially with children is to help people understand here's how to respond to the gospel. You don't just go, oh, thanks. So Paul uses some phrases a variety of phrases. He goes, remember that gospel I preached to you? He said, number one, you received it, okay? So the first thing, the first response to the gospel is an informed response, a thoughtful response. You can't respond to the gospel if you don't understand the information. And, and there's a problem with that. Sometimes in how we evangelize children, do you boys and girls want to go down there to that bad place where you're burning? <laughs> do you want to go up there with Jesus? <laughs> okay, say this prayer. Dear Jesus, come in my heart. Okay. How many of you said that? <laughs> Hundreds of kids were saved. I'm going, no, please stop. Don't do that. The gospel starts with information, right? You have to understand a thoughtful, intellectual understanding. And we're going to look at what that is in just a moment. But then he says, not only did you receive it, he said, in which you stand. What does he mean by that? So, for lack of a better illustration, before you you respond to the gospel, you're standing in this circle, right? When you respond to the gospel, you stand in a new sphere. On Christ the solid rock, I stand. What does that mean? It means that I have changed my mind. I have turned from where I was to a trusting response in Jesus Christ. The Bible calls this repentance and faith, okay? Now, not everybody can clearly articulate the exact moment you did that, and you don't need to know that, but what you do need to know is this. Have you, after hearing the message of the gospel, having been informed in your head with your heart and your soul and your will, chosen to respond and to trust in Christ alone? Have you been willing to turn from your irreligiousness or your religiousness and turn and believe in your heart the message of the gospel. I'm not talking about acknowledging it in your head. So please don't settle for this. Do you believe in Jesus? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. Oh, then you're saved. What are you talking about? Do you believe in Santa Claus? No. Do you believe in the Easter Bunny? No. Do you believe in Santa Claus and the Easter Bunny? No. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes. Oh, then you're saved. The devil believes that Jesus exists. So an appropriate response to the gospel is not just, I don't believe that that happened. It's, I trust that it's true, and I'm willing to turn from my life, 
I'm not changing my life. I'm willing to trust. That's called taking your stand, right? And in fact, the means by which you, you demonstrate that, the Bible says you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart. And the biblical way that you, you demonstrate that you're taking that stand is a public baptism. In other words, when Paul would preach the gospel, he would then say, okay, anybody going to want to respond, right? And those who believed in their heart, who truly wanted to trust Christ, would say, yes, I'm taking my stand. And then they would publicly acknowledge that and get baptized. Thus, we carry on that biblical mandate. That's why if you saw, pay attention, if you saw in the current, we have baptism class coming on the 22nd, right? So if you believe that Jesus died and rose again and you have responded to his message, yes, that's what I believe and I trust him as my Lord and Savior, then demonstrate, take your stand, publicly get baptized and show that. So he says, that's, that's your response. He says, in fact, it's by which you are saved. So, so it was a, a trusting response, a thoughtful response. It was a hopeful response. When they did it, they, they were able to go, I'm saved, right? Life now is sweet and my joy is complete for I'm saved, saved, saved. Like some of you probably don't even know whether you could say that. Like, I don't know if I'm saved, but, but God wants you to know. God invites you to have that assurance. And I understand some of you struggle with doubts and maybe some recurring, I'm not sure I said that prayer, but, but I'm talking more about you who are like, well, I thought I had to be a good person. Like, whoever told you you can't know that you're saved, you can know that you're saved. God wants you to have this hope that I'm saved. And Paul goes, don't you remember? I watched you get in that water and joyfully go, praise God, I believe I'm saved. And he goes, but now, he says, unless you believed in vain, this is really important. A true response to the gospel is a permanent response to the gospel. Okay? Theologians call this perseverance. If you do believe the gospel, you will continue to believe the gospel. That's one of the marks of a genuine conversion. Anybody who determines that, I don't believe that junk anymore, mark this down. They did not lose their salvation. If a person permanently renounces the gospel, Paul didn't say, oh, I guess you lost it because you believed in vain. Your faith was never genuine and real. 1 John chapter 2 says this, those people who went out from us, they were never of us because if they were of us, they would have remained with us. Because think about it, our salvation is not ultimately dependent on my ability to grasp these deep intellectual truths. It's because he that began a good work in me performs it till the day of Christ. God called me to himself. He chose me. He predestined me. He called me. He opened my eyes and, and enabled me to respond by faith. And he regenerated my heart and gave me new life. And he keeps me by his Holy Spirit. My Lord sits at the right hand of God praying for me and he, persevere, he keeps me persevering until that day that I enter into the kingdom of God. So one of the themes of Paul's letters and as we disciple people is don't move away from the gospel. That's what, remember he writes to the Galatians, he goes, I, I, I'm, I'm stupefied. How could you move away from this gospel that I made so clear to you? So, so 
That's the response. He goes, guys, let me remind you of your response. You, you responded, you trusted, and you were persevering. Now I'm not sure. Now let's move to the second thing, the content of the gospel. Now, if, if you've been zoning out, stop it. And here's why. Because if, number one, this is your heaven or hell, right? The only way to get to heaven is to understand and respond to the gospel. There's no other way. There's no other name under heaven. Number two, if you're a Christian, this is your loved ones and your children's heaven or hell. And you don't want to get it wrong. Paul says, pay close attention to yourself and to your theology, your doctrine, so that you can ensure salvation not only for yourself, but for those who hear you. So, you know, maybe even write some notes down, right? Like, I want to make sure I understand the gospel, right? I don't want to just tell my kids, ah, I don't want to push religion on you. You pick. Anybody who says that, I go, I don't think they get it. That'd be like putting 10 bottles out for your kids and saying, nine of them are strychnine and it'll kill you. One of them's good for you. You pick, okay? So in this section, many theologians would say this is the clearest place in the entire New Testament where the gospel is outlined. So the next time you advance the gospel, share the gospel with someone, you, you better cover this. There's a lot of things you don't need to cover, but there's some things you do. So what is the gospel? Number one, it's a predicted and accomplished substitutionary sacrifice. You're like, Pastor, them there, big words, I can't even remember that. But we'll, we'll bust it down a little bit. But a predicted and accomplished substitutionary sacrifice. In other words, ready for this? Christ died for your sins. Okay? The first part of the content of the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. But why do you call it predicted and accomplished substitutionary sacrifice? Well, let's think about it. Let's look at verse 3. He goes, for I delivered to you as of first importance. In other words, there's nothing more important than the gospel, right? There are what we call primary doctrines and secondary doctrines. Whether you believe tongues is for today, whether you believe in a pre-tib rapture, that's of secondary importance. But what's primarily important is what do you believe about the gospel? So Paul says, I delivered it to you. So his, his job was not to cleverly come up with some new ideas. He just said, okay, Jesus, he says in Galatians 1, I learned the gospel from Jesus. Okay, and this is our job. Our job, we don't have to make it fancy. We don't have to put puppies in the background, have dogs and clowns jumping through hoops and flaming things. You don't have to make it fancy or clever. Just make sure you communicate the gospel. Number one, he says, here's what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. So first of all, I want you to note that, that Paul feels it necessary to remind us that the gospel was predicted. It's according to the scriptures. In fact, he says the same thing in Romans 1. In Romans 1, he goes, I'm set apart for the gospel, which was promised beforehand by the prophets. So think about this. If you just walk up to somebody and say, I've got news for you. Christ died for your sins. You're assuming an awful lot. Number one, you're assuming that they even understand what Christ means. I mean, many people think Christ was Jesus' last name, right? The mailman's like, where did that Christ live? Here's a, ah, there's Joe and Mary and Jesus Christ. Here you go. So, so there, that thing's packed. In fact, Paul says it this way in, in, in Thessalonians. If we believe that Jesus died and rose again. But to just say Jesus, many people don't know who Jesus is. Jesus is just some guy that was born at Christmas. He died, you know, he's a revolutionary Great, great sayings. But Paul says, it's Christ. It's the Messiah. 
that died for our sins. So, in other words, this gospel was not something that God thought up last minute. He's like, oh my word, these people are out of control. This is what I had in mind when I created them. They're like Frankenstein. What am I going to do now? Huh. Jesus, get down there. No, this was all planned out. In the purposes of God before he ever spoke the universe in, into existence, he planned that Christ would be the lamb that would come and he would die for us. And so when it says according to the scriptures, the sacrificial death of Christ was predicted in the Old Testament. Folks, I can't tell you how many people I have, have literally said this to. Why did Jesus die? And, and they can parrot it. Right? In fact, what are the top three words? For our sins. Everybody. Why did Jesus die? For our sins. I go, great. What does that mean? I don't really know. Wait a minute. You don't know what that means? For our sins? I never really thought about that. So can you see how clever Satan is? How many people could answer the question, why did Jesus die? for our sins, and yet have no idea what that means, right? In fact, there's been times where I've been talking to someone about the gospel, I'll ask them, why do you think God will let you into heaven? And they'll go, because um, I'm a good person. And I go, well, what about Jesus? He died on the cross, right? Oh, yeah, that too. Like, apparently, you're not getting it. Christ died for our sins. So the idea of for our sins is a substitutionary sacrifice, right? The sinless one dies for the sinful one. There's a transfer. And God had planned this all along to show this in the Old Testament. He said, look, take a lamb, a, a spotless lamb, symbolizing an innocent victim. Put your hand on its head, confess your sins, and then shed the blood and kill that lamb, and that will cover your sin. Ultimately, God's intention was to take all of our sins and place them on Christ, on that cross, and the Bible says, he died the just for the unjust. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. He bore, First Peter says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. So don't downplay how important this is. Christ died for our sins. How many of them? All of them, past, present, and future. There's no purgatory. There's no, he did his part, you do yours. The gospel is not a relay race. You run one lap, he runs one lap. He hangs on that cross and he takes all the penalty that I deserve and he says, it is finished. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Christ died for all of your sins? If you do, if someone were to ask you, why should God let you into heaven? Why on earth would you think things like, I hope I'm good enough. I think I've done enough. I'm like, wait, you missed it. Why should God let you in heaven? Not because you deserve it, but Christ died for our sins. That's the gospel. And as you're growing as a Christian, you can learn how to explain that. Even from the Old Testament, you can say, hey, my Jewish friend, let's read Isaiah 53. But this is what we sing about. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Not the labor of my hands could fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? All to him and him alone I owe. Jesus died for our sins. That's what we advance. And so when you're explaining to your children, you're not just, do you want to go down there? Mm -mm. Want to go up there? Mm -mm. It's, hey, do you understand that you and I deserve to go down there because we're sinful? 
And the penalty for sin is, is not only physical death, but going down into hell. But Jesus went up on that cross and God punished him. It's like he got spanked so that you don't have to. Do you believe that? So Paul says, let me just remind you that. So folks, when we're sharing the gospel, Christ died for your sins. And take the time to help them understand that. What do you mean by Christ? He is God's son, eternal son of God who became human. Not just some unfortunate guy, the Messiah, the promised one. So, number one, he goes, I'll remind you that it was a predicted, accomplished sacrifice. Number two, he says, and, and it was a proven succession of life. He was buried, right? He was buried. Satan is always trying to twist the gospel. So let's go to verse four. It says, not only did he die for our sins, but he was buried, right? There are people who say, Jesus wasn't really dead. He was just weak and wounded and weary, it's called the swoon theory. But as he lay in that cool tomb, he revived. I'm like, please, that takes more faith than that he rose from the dead, right? Who unwrapped his grave clothes? So, so he was dead. It was certified that he was dead. And then third, it was a predicted and accomplished bodily resurrection. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, why does he add the third day is that really part of the gospel if a person doesn't remember that it was the third day? You're not saved if you don't remember it was the third day. There's a lot of speculation about this. One thing I found interesting is that Psalm 16, which predicted the, re the resurrection of Christ, said this. It says, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo corruption or decay, which Paul quotes that in the New Testament to demonstrate that God promised that Messiah would, would die. Well, there was, there's documented Jewish evidence that they believe the body did not begin to decay till after three days. Remember day four with Lazarus, he stinketh. So I don't think that's a big deal. Don't, don't, if, I don't say the third day, but you better say this. He rose again in a body, right? Now, interestingly, sometimes I'll read a gospel track and it won't even have the resurrection. It'll just say, Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you, Right? We mustn't assume that people know and believe this, that Jesus Christ in a physical body was raised from the dead. Now, some people will take this passage and say, see, look, here's the evidence. I can prove Jesus rose from the dead. That's silly. You can't prove Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, all Paul does is say, look, there was a bunch of witnesses, right? So God doesn't prove that Jesus rose from the dead. He bears witness and he says, you believe it? Anytime, if you were put on a jury, you listen to the witnesses. You got one of two choices. I believe them or I don't. So these apostles bore witness. Jesus rose from the dead. Do you believe it? Okay, so this is not intended to prove the resurrection. It just, that's, we tell people that. But then Paul goes on and he begins a whole list of appearances. And, and I never really understood until studying that this time why he went out of his way to, to explain all of these appearances. And I think it's ultimately to get to the point of his apostleship. Okay, so we'll just take a few moments on this. If you were to read the New Testament in Acts chapter 1, it says that after Jesus rose from the dead, he stayed down here on earth for 40 more days, right? And it says, 
His purpose was appearing to these young, early disciples to confirm that he had really risen from the dead. Forty days. Now, we have no idea how many times in those 40 days he showed up somewhere. In fact, if you were to take all the gospel records, the New Testament, there are only 10 accounts of his resurrection. Now, some of you who know the Bible would be like, oh, is that like the one where he appeared to Mary at the garden and she says, Rabboni? Is that like the one where he's walking with the two from Emmaus and he's like, hey, who, who are you talking about? Is that like the one where, um, you know, he, he, he appears to this person? Yeah, yeah, there's 10 of them. But he probably appeared dozens of times. In fact, in this passage, Paul goes, one time he appeared to 500 people at once. This sanctuary holds around 500 people. Imagine Jesus Christ coming out of the grave and standing here and saying, hi, everybody, I'm risen. Tom, grab me. I grab him. We give him something to eat. Then he disappears. And now all 500 will go, I saw it. Imagine people going, I don't believe it. You're like, you call 500 people a liar? So Paul's just going to select some appearances. And I'll read them quickly because I want to get to his point. His point is, yeah, lots of people saw it, but I saw it. And I'm an apostle, and I want you to come under my authority. So look what he says. He says in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Now mark that down. Which 12? Judas is gone. Is that, is that Matthias from Acts 1? And he says, and then after that, he appeared to 500 brothers at one time. And he's like, and if you, some of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Now, again, imagine that. His brother James, who didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead. That might have been an interesting conversation. James comes home from the funeral, and there's Jesus sitting on the couch. Told you, James. <laughs> right? And then James gets converted and becomes a leader in the church. Right? I mean, we could do a sermon on every one of these appearances. Then it says he appeared to all the apostles, and you're like, wait, you already said he appeared to the 12. So actually, I'm going to suggest that all the apostles is more than the 12, okay? The, there, there were 12 apostles in an official office, but the word apostle is used of other people beside the 12, and he makes a distinction. But then he says this, last of all, as to where one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Now, you might go, oh, fine, Paul. You can't be on any subject without making it about you, right? Like, here we go again. You got to talk about you. He's like, no. Why does he do this? Why does he say, and so he, he, here's where I want to land. He appeared to me last. So the first thing he says is, by the way, I'm last on the list. And remember this phrase, last but not least? Paul's actually go, I'm not only last on the list. And the next verse he goes, and I'm least. So he's last and least. Why are you doing that, Paul? In fact, look, look what he says. Last of all, as to one untimely born. Now, what does that mean? That word literally means a premature birth. Could be an abortion, a stillbirth, or a miscarriage. But it refers to something horrible or freakish, right? So one of these apostles is not like the other, right? It's Paul. Years after Christ had already ascended back into heaven. He appears to, to Paul on the road to Damascus. And Paul's calling is very unusual. It's remarkable. It's miraculous. So he says, not only was it last, verse 9, in fact, I'm the least of the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so Paul says, 
I'm the last, I'm the least. I'm a recipient of God's grace. Whenever he thought about his conversion, he goes, why would God save me of all people? I killed Christians. I'm the chief of sinners. But he said, Jesus saved me so that he might be an example of his patience to all who believe afterward. In other words, we can say, if Paul could save Paul, or Jesus could save Paul, he could save anyone. Sometimes we'll sing this song about grace. Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Paul never got over the remarkable, undeserved grace of God in his life. So look what he says in verse 10. I'm a recipient of grace. By the grace of God, I am what I am. It's entirely of grace. And folks, if you're a Christian, it's entirely of grace. He bought you, he called you, he selected you, he's keeping you, and one day we'll enter the kingdom of God and we will continue to sing amazing grace. 10,000 years from now, we'll still be singing of his remarkable grace. So when you hear about election, you shouldn't go, you mean he called me? You say, why me? Why of these billions of people on earth would you be so merciful to me? God, thank you for your grace. But notice that he didn't just receive God's grace, but Paul says, I was a first responder. Remember those days? You can't come in yet unless you were a first responder. Take a note of this. He goes, but I want you to know something about God's grace. He goes, his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them. I thought he said, it's all God's grace. He said, it is. But yet, I responded to God's grace. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's going to say, don't receive the grace of God in vain. If any of you here end up in hell, you heard the gospel of grace. And it's going to be all your fault if you refuse to respond. But if you do respond, then you go, it's all God's grace. But I want you to note that God's grace is not just saving grace. But each one of us, God gives us sanctifying grace in order to serve him. His enabling empowerment is designed to stir you, to work in you, to will and work for his good pleasure. Anytime you want to get closer to Jesus, anytime you want to do something for Jesus, anytime you want to praise and love Jesus, it's the grace of God at work in you. But every time the Spirit of God moves us to do something for Christ and we go, we are rejecting grace. We are not responding to grace. So you go, well, what is it, Tom? Is it God working in me or me working? And Paul goes, yeah. So he says in Philippians, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But by the way, <laughs> it's God who's at work in you. So as a Christian, what a, what a wonderful way to look at my Christian life. It's all of grace. God called me, brought me to himself, He's given me a spirit. He's given me gifts, which means I can pray. I can love. I can turn from sin. I can do all things through Christ. And if I do, to God be the glory because it's his grace in me. If I don't, then I received his grace in vain. And so what a practical way to close. So let me just give you some thoughts because Paul's going to call them back under his leadership. Just real quick, and then we're going to do, do some fun things. Number one, have you embraced the gospel? Have you responded? Have you ever made a confession? Have you ever said, here I stand in the gospel? If you've never done that, do it. Not for me, but because you believe. 
And the way that you can show that is we have a baptism coming. Number two, are you advancing the gospel? Paul says, I make known to you the gospel that I proclaim to you. If for any reason you're under the impression that your job is to bring people to church so we can proclaim it, it's not entirely true. You can do that. Bring your friends to church and we will proclaim the gospel. But you're allowed to proclaim the gospel. In fact, God wants you to share the gospel. God wants you to sit down with your children and make sure they understand that Christ died and rose again and what it means to turn from sin and trust in him. Third, are you clinging to the gospel? And that's important because every day there are people who are on the verge of bailing. And if you don't think that's true, the beach is a time, and you probably know people who used to go here, who used to say they're saved, and they don't want anything to do with it. How did they end up there? How did they move away? Hebrews chapter 3 says this, we should exhort one another every day, lest any of us be hardened and fall away from God through the deceitfulness of sin, which goes back to what we've been saying last week. We need to be connected with other Christians to keep one another clinging. And some of you, I know your hearts are breaking because you have a loved one who's moved away. Don't give up. Keep praying. Keep hoping. James chapter 5 says, if anyone strays from the truth and you turn them back, you've saved a soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. And one more thing, if you have kids or grandkids and you've been pleading with God for them to respond to the gospel and they respond to the gospel, that doesn't mean stop praying. You go, praise the Lord, they're saved now. It just means change your prayer. Praise the Lord, they confessed Jesus. Now pray for them to persevere. Pray for them to keep believing, keep growing. Don't ever stop praying for them to keep clinging to the gospel of grace. And ultimately, what we believe about Jesus is going to affect how we behave. 